course, as always, try to, at least, bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. I think we do a pretty good job of that. Yeah, this is Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we are here broadcasting from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. If you value what we do, we could sure use your support. What you can do is visit the uh, donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit doing good work in the world, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Also check out Gateway's catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Where, you know, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. All right, looking ahead to today's program, we, well, <laughs> we're going to be talking about, Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to be talking about the challenges we face this time of the year, uh, especially this year with a very, very unusual entry into spring. We'll talk about that in our final segment, our food and farm segment. I also want to talk with you about lessons I learned from a winter I spent in Nova Scotia. And yes, for those of you who live in the continental U.S., that's way up there. Uh, well, I mean, it's not, it's, not the, it's not the Yukon Territory, but it's up there. Anyway, it's an interesting, I think you'll enjoy the conversation. I also want to talk about uranium mining. This is a sad, serious, and, and should be a slam dunk in terms of what we do regarding, uh, regarding keeping the one lone uranium mill open in the U.S. we got an interesting lineup for you, I'll say that. I want to talk about everybody's favorite pests, mosquitoes, because mosquito season is, you know, it's, it's approaching in some parts of the country. Louisiana, I'm sure you've already got your mosquitoes going on. We don't yet in Iowa. And some places, of course, don't seem to have the mosquito problem. But, you know, when, when you think of the most dangerous animal in the world, you know, ask anybody, you ask somebody, what's the most dangerous animal in the world? And I'm sure people will say lion, wolf, shark, wolf shark, I don't know. Uh, humans, yeah, I, uh, that, that, might be a, that might be the most logical guess would be we are the most dangerous animal in the world. But, again, think small. And if you said tick, uh, no, not that small. Uh, but I, you know, all right, I got to share a quick story about ticks with you folks. Uh, I would choose a mosquito over a tick any day. You know, on the uh, Great March for Climate Action, it was, it was kind of like a, a succession of plagues that had been sent to torment us. It was, it was one thing after another. Storms, hail, uh, sprinklers going off in the middle of the night, um, uh, mosquito spray, which can, will tie us back into that main conversation. But, but here one day... Um, we are, we're in this area that is of Nebraska that is absolutely infested with ticks. I literally pulled 14 ticks off me by the end of a day. But I'd say the real kicker was, uh, the real test of just how bad it was, one of our marchers, a gal named Jane, took a blank piece of white paper, and she ran that piece of paper along the side of the road where we were walking. And again, we're walking on a highway, and there's just like little tiny bits of shrubbery on the side of the road, small grasses. They'd been mowed. They grew back a bit. She runs this white piece of paper, just a handful of feet along the road, pulls it up, and counts 50 ticks on the backside of that white piece of paper. Now, I've seen ticks before. I've lived in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Nova Scotia, more on that. I've lived in tick country. I've, I've pulled ticks off me before. I've never seen 
50 ticks congregate on one piece of white paper. I've never pulled 14 off of me. And I, you know, I did some research and, uh, you know, the, uh, while we were at the very moment that we were walking across the country, there was a story in the news from just maybe um, a few hundred miles away. Uh, it was down in um, Delaware County, Oklahoma, a guy named Johnny Mitzner. He died of something called the Heartland virus. And that was given to him through a tick bite. And, you know, he was an outdoor guy. He, um, he, he was healthy. He was in his 70s. And yet he got this from a tick bite and died. So, you know, <laughs> we are um, on the march. Again, when we're living outside and apparently walking, on, walking along a road that might as well be the, the, the tick Grand Expressway, we are very, very cognizant of this problem. So, yeah, not a fan of ticks. And, of course, no logical person would say they're a fan of mosquitoes. And, again, looking at mosquitoes, they are, I guess you could say, the most dangerous animal in the world. They inflict more uh, human suffering than any other beast on the planet. And, uh, you know, there are about 700 million people every year who are infected by one of the um, major uh, mosquito-borne diseases. We've got, of course, malaria. Everybody knows about malaria. Uh, West Nile virus, that's the, that's the you know, mosquito-borne disease that we tend to get here in the U.S. Yellow fever, dengue fever, and my favorite, uh, chikungunya fever. Uh, I, I, I'd never heard of that until recently. Chikungunya. No relation to chickens at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's not, it's not that serious, but it's kind of like a bad flu. You know, mild flu, I guess, for a week or so. And then, of course, the Zika virus. 90% of these ailments are in Africa, which is horrible and tragic and needs to be addressed. But in the U.S., you know, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't have it that bad. Uh, and just, again, one more a, a global perspective on this. Again, if there are 700 million people each year who are, in, are infected, and you're looking at uh, 2.7 million people die, and that's a lot. That's a lot of people succumbing to one insect's ravages. But that, what, what that comes out to is 0.38% percent of all those who are infected die. So it's a really low rate of death. Again, not diminishing the 2.7 million lives lost. It's a lot. Yeah, but overall, you know, your chances of recovering from a mosquito-borne disease are upwards of 99%. Okay, so, um, yeah, and I, you know, I've only been to Africa once, and uh, I was prepared to go to the whole continent, so I got my yellow fever shot, uh, my typhoid shot. I can't remember what else. I was prepared to buy the malaria tablets. Um, some reason decided not to or maybe couldn't get a hold of them in time. But I, the only, I went to Egypt. And so I'm staying, true story, I'm staying at a convent. <laughs> More on that some other time. I'm staying at a convent. And these ceilings in this room are, are just, uh, what, 10 feet tall, maybe, maybe taller. They're huge. And I see mosquitoes. Uh, they're flying around the top of the ceiling. And I'm like, dang, I know one of them's got malaria. I know one of them's got me in his target. What am I going to do? So I take my pillow, and there's a fairly substantial pillow, and I'm hurling this pillow to the ceiling trying to kill these mosquitoes, which I'm, I'm absolutely convinced have malaria. So, uh, yeah, well, I later learned that malaria in Egypt is pretty uncommon. <laughs> it didn't tell me. It, it helped me at any rate. The benefit of that experience is I improved my, my pillow-tossing capacity. Um, probably my most uh, intimate experience with mosquitoes was growing up in a town called Saugus, which um, basically means swamp. And we grew up on a swamp, and it was a beautiful swamp. That's, I, I tell you great stories about that. 
But the mosquitoes coming out of that swamp were so thick. They were incredibly thick. At night, when you, in the evening, when they were the thickest, you had, and you were ready to come inside, me and my brothers would come inside, we would have to open the door, rush in, and slam it behind us. And even doing that, you would often get 6 to 12 mosquitoes in the house. And so the ritual before bed, where I grew up, was to go around the house, try to find any mosquito that had already, that, that he evaded detection, and squish them all. And inevitably, you would squish a mosquito on the wall, and it would not just be a little black smear, it would be a red smear, meaning it had already bit one of us. That's my experience with mosquitoes. Um, you know, I've lived in the North Country as well, Wisconsin, Minnesota. And, I, you know, I would take mosquitoes any day to black flies. Black flies are the plague. I mean, those, yeah, I, I was in the Porcupine Mountains once, uh, northern Michigan. It was uh, mid-May. Uh, the snow had mostly melted. It was beautiful. We were harvesting wild leeks to make leek and potato soup, just sitting outside, shorts, T-shirt, and suddenly they came. And within an hour, the black flies were absolutely unbearable. And they don't just, they don't like stick a little stinger in you and then go off. They, they bite you. They, they dig their little heads into you. They're horrible. Uh, I, I actually knew a, knew a young gal who um, was bit by so many black flies that she uh, was uh, badly uh, infected with a fever, not not... not just from the just from the the stress of having that many bites, she had like sixty bites on her. My gosh! So back to mosquitoes. I keep digressing. Black flies, ticks. Okay, we're back to mosquitoes. The U.S. is a place that is been, we've been fortunate not at this point in our development not to have a bad problem with mosquito-borne diseases. Um, so again, as I said earlier, the worst mosquito-borne problem in the U.S. is the West Nile virus, and uh, that can be lethal. Uh, in humans, but again, 80% of the people who are infected will show no symptoms, none, period. <laughs> okay, so, and of, of anybody infected by the West Nile virus, again, back in 2012, and this wasn't a, this wasn't a real problem till it became somewhat, you know, more recent in this, this century, but in 2012, 286 Americans died of the West Nile, vi West Nile, <laughs> West Nile virus, Maybe we can call it the West Nile. I kind of like that. The West Nile virus. Again, that's not a lot. But better news still, that virus has been in decline ever since. In 2020, the last year we have any stats for, 33 Americans died of West Nile virus. So, you know, I, I, I want to take the mosquitoes. I, I actually, I want to take the rest of the universe's, um, the rest of creation's perspective for a second here. We may hate mosquitoes, but uh, they are, they're a critical element of the food chain. I mean, think about all the uh, birds and the bats and the frogs that eat mosquitoes. I mean, it's, it's actually very entertaining to see a frog lurch its tongue out and grab a mosquito. Very gratifying as well. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the larvae, when, when the larvae are just floating in, in water, fish are dining on them. And, you know, when you've got uh, literally over a quadrillion, what, I, I can't remember, I saw the number, like four quadrillion mosquitoes in the world, that's a lot of food. Uh, a lot of the food chain is dependent upon that source of, uh, of, of nutrient. And so, um, yeah, the, uh, we, we have to be aware that if there is a mosquito, if mosquitoes weren't around, there would be a problem for our birds, for, our, for other bugs, for fish. And, you know, that works its way up the food chain. If, um, 
you know, if, if birds aren't getting uh, enough to eat, that's a, that's, that's a huge decline in diversity right there. But other animals further up that depend on birds and eggs, their eggs sometimes for food, suffer. So, um, I, you know, I get it, though, that we want to control the mosquito population. There, there are really intelligent ways to do that. One is don't have tires laying around that tend to collect water and become great breeding grounds for mosquitoes. Uh, for that matter, don't have any standing piece of water laying around your property. Um, you know, mosquitoes, mosquitoes will travel no more than a quarter of a mile in their lifetime. So if you're in a city or even a town and you can keep that town pretty clean of breeding grounds, you're not going to have much of a mosquito problem. And again, if you do have mosquitoes, uh, especially prominent in the morning, of course, and at night, dusk, just wear a shirt, wear a hat, wear bug spray if you must. You know, put some on your hands and your neck. And honestly, I never wear bug spray. If I'm going to have a bug problem, I put on a shirt, I put on a hat. Um, and I, if I get a couple bites, I don't fret about that. I know that there's a risk. Again, 33 Americans died of West Nile virus in 2020 in a population of 350 million. So not a huge concern. So, but, you know, despite that, it seems like cities are obsessed with the spraying program. And I was dismayed just this past week. Again, people are starting to think about mosquitoes now, about either protecting themselves from them, or in my case, protecting myself from the spray that they, they dump on me. Uh, I went to the city of Des Moines um, mosquito control page, and it said, quote, you are encouraged to spray or fog your yard and use bug spray when outside. You're encouraged to spray or fog your yard. Does anybody else agree that that's like basically insane? I mean, every homeowner walking around with a toxic, you know, spray gun in their, in their hands, spraying their yard. And, you know, of course, that spray doesn't just stay on their yard. It goes to their neighbor's yard. Again, remember, mosquitoes travel about a quarter of a mile in their entire life. Uh, now, the other thing I would say is, and I don't know about your part of the world, folks, but in Des Moines, I have hardly seen a mosquito the past four or five years. And that's not because of a spraying program, because some of us have convinced the city that there are areas that shouldn't be sprayed. For example, we raise bees, so we don't have a uh, spray happening uh, within, I think, 300 feet of our beehives. So, you know, I, I just... Um, the, the, the fogging the yard thing. I, I, will I will tell you this. I approached one of our city council members and said, do you realize that's on the website? Encouraging everybody to go out and spray or fog their yard? <laughs> and when he found out, he agreed, and it was quickly removed from the website. So thank you. That's good public service, folks, right there. So, you know, I, you know I, again, every town varies. In Des Moines, you can ask the city not to spray your property and what they will do, they won't spray the entire block uh, either side of your property. We happen to be in the middle of a block, so that whole block doesn't get sprayed. But actually, in our case, it's a bigger area because the city also recognizes the importance of bees. Uh, again, I, I, I remind folks that, at least in our town, mosquitoes haven't been a problem. Even without spraying, they haven't been a problem. And again, if they are a problem, the incidence of getting something that's going to kill you or even make you really sick is very, very minimal. So I, you know, I looked a bit, you know, <laughs> okay, I, I want to say this for the next, uh, I, I got to take a short break here, but I, I want to talk to you about the company that makes the chemical 
that kills the mosquitoes. And of course, along with the mosquitoes, a lot of other things, uh, other, other bugs, maybe some birds, maybe your pets. But uh, let me take a short break. And when we come back, uh, I'll, I'll pick up that thread because I find it very informative and especially important this time of the year. Again, this is Ed Fallon. We've got to take this short break. And when we come back, we're going to tackle this issue with a little more detail. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Again, Ed Fallon with you here. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, our niche here is more important than ever. Uh, please support what we do. Sign up for our newsletter, spread the word, go to the Fallon Forum website, donate if you can, uh, become a monthly sponsor if possible. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet. And the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's architecture by synthesis. Thanks also to Groovy Goods. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovy-goods.com or stop in at 23rd and University Ave in Des Moines. All right, so the company that Des Moines buys its mosquito spray from is called Univar. And uh, Univar uses a product that they call Control 4-4. And Control is very, very cleverly spelled with a K. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, and the primary ingredients in Control 4-4 is uh, permethrin. Uh, and another um, delight called uh, piperonal, 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 not quite sure how to say it, butoxide. It almost sounds like a curse word. Anyway. Piperonil, piperonil botoxide. That's what Des Moines sprays on us. Well, again, not on us because we request that they don't and we have bees and also organic vegetable gardens. But So the, this, um, this company is headquartered in Texas and they're, uh, they're required by law to, to, contain, to um, release certain information about their product. And if you dig deep enough, you might learn about what they're spraying on your neighborhood. So... Again, I'm, I'm assuming this is a big corporation. I'm presuming that if you live in a town that sprays for mosquitoes, you're probably also getting some of this mix. So look into it. The, um, the uh, notification on Univar's website says, quote, harmful if swallowed, inhaled, or absorbed through the skin. 
causes moderate eye irritation, may cause moderate skin irritation with prolonged or repeated contact, may cause allergic skin reactions, toxic to aquatic organisms, including fish and aquatic invertebrates, toxic to bees exposed to direct treatment on blooming crops or weeds. So again, you know, bees travel two miles. So this is a problem even though they don't spray within 300 feet of our bees. Our bees travel up to two miles to secure pollen and nectar. And if they're going to eat from a plant that's been sprayed by uh, Control 4-4, uh, they could be in for an untimely demise. So this is um, this company, Univar. It's a Fortune 500 company. They've got close to 10,000 employees. Uh, their CEO is David Jukes. He's paid $5.3 million a year. And I'm, you know, we're not fooled by that anymore. We know that getting paid $5.3 million when you're the head of a big chemical company we know that's more, there's more to it than that. Uh, we know you've got all kinds of additional compensation, and we just don't have that at our fingertips. It's not as easily procured as his salary. But $5.3 million, no, that's not bad. That's not bad for a year's work. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, this company makes other things as well. And during the pandemic, uh, Univar, and I quote again from their website, provided elements for hand sanitizer, medical supplies, cleaning products, and medications. So... I'm guessing they got a fair few dollars from the federal government to help uh, battle the coronavirus. Okay, not judging, just saying, yeah, that's where some of our tax money went, was probably to this guy's 5.3 million salary. Oh, I guess I did make a judgment. Sorry, folks. Couldn't resist. So the US EPA, uh, it, uh, it, it, there, was a law, there was a lawsuit against Univar back in uh, 2021, just last year. And uh, Univar had to pay... Uh, 165000 again, that's like a tap on the wrist, for violating the federal insecticide, fungicide, and rodenticide. Yes, that means mice. You, for all the mice listening, that means you. Uh, because it failed to label its uh, Woodlife 111 pesticide. All right. Uh, again, slap on the wrist. They've, they've had other lawsuits as well. Um, <laughs> but... I, yeah, I just think it's fascinating to see where this stuff comes from, what we don't know about the chemicals being sprayed on us. Now, when I was a kid, again, I grew up in the mosquito capital of the, of the, of the Northeast. And um, I, as I said earlier, there were so many mosquitoes that when you went into, inside it now, you had to shut the door quickly and they would still get in. Six to 12 would still get in. But I remember as a kid, this has been back when they used to do, and if I'm, a, if I'm at all a mess, folks, this is probably to blame. When I was a kid, they did spraying by helicopter. And they did not wait till after dark when everybody was in bed. I remember being out there playing, yay, a helicopter going overhead, yippee, wow. And then all, I would feel this little sticky stuff coming down on me, you know, sticky stuff. And we all know what, back then, oh, we didn't think anything of that. My mom didn't think anything of that. Um, of course, the government didn't tell us what it was. So um, I, think, I, I think I survived that, but <laughs> I tell you, uh, I can't, I can't imagine that would be a good thing to put on your kids. So anyway, at least I'll say this. At least we've made progress from aerial spraying with helicopters to now doing it with trucks that work after dark. And again, at least in Des Moines, you, there is an exemption available. If you do not want to be sprayed, they will not spray you. And, and again, the stuff they're spraying you with, you heard, you, you heard the required language on the company's website. It's not, it's nasty stuff. It's not stuff that you want to be, um, you know, be messing with. 
But, you know, again, even though we have this, um, this, this uh, tremendous decline in, in a mosquito population in Iowa, in Des Moines at least, the, um, the headline in one paper recently reads, Aggressive Mosquito Species is Abundant in Iowa. And um, <laughs> so, and I've seen several other headlines, headlines like that saying, you know, um, these are these are bad. These are terrible. They're coming, and uh, you know, I got I got to say, it's, it's it's it seems like so much hype, given the reality. Again, mosquitoes in the decline, uh, the toxins that are being sprayed, bad stuff, and um, the fact that even if you are bitten, your chances of getting sick are very very limited. And if you do get sick, your chances of, get, of dying, again, with West Nile virus, out of 350 million Americans, 33 died. Again, nothing to sneeze at, but be smart, be safe, but don't poison yourselves in the process. And speaking of poison, uh, this story has come to my attention, and it is deeply disturbing. It's um, about the only remaining uh, active uranium mill in the U.S., uh, and even though it was originally, when it was built in 1980, it was originally believed that, it was originally stated that it was not going to be open for more than 15 years. Well, it's not only open, it's expanding. And right now, it has plans to import waste. I mean, it doesn't just mill uranium from uranium harvested, harvested uh, on site in the Four Corners area of the U.S., it wants to bring uranium in from other places, uh, Estonia in particular. It wants to bring a huge amount in. Now, you know, this is the um, historic. This is the 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 long long lasting. Uh, this is this is where the Utes, the Ute people, have have lived for for who knows how many how many generations. Um, and there's a very excellent story in High Country News from November of last year, November of 2021, about the problem. And it focuses on a number of people, including a, a Ute woman, Yolanda Badback. And she talks about the, um, the uh, noxious fumes that they must breathe. She talks about the water uh, no longer being safe to drink. Um, talks about how when they expanded certain areas of this mill, they destroyed uh, archaeolog archaeological sites. Um, and this has been going on for 40 years now. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's, it's, it's depleted the uh, tribe's um, traditional hunting grounds. It's destroyed places where the tribe used to gather to make baskets and have, uh, have ceremonies and whatnot. Um, and it's very close to uh, Bears Ears. Now, many of you might remember Bears Ears um, when our previous uh, president, Donald Trump, um, wanted to uh, uh, close, uh, but he basically wanted to sell off Bears Ears National Monument. So uh, <laughs> the company behind this mill is Energy Fuels Resources. And uh, who is Energy Fuels Resources? Well, it's a, it's a company that, um, <laughs> in this article, is described as, quote, influential, an influential power among government agencies and top officials. In 2017, a Washington Post investigation revealed that the company had urged the Trump administration to shrink Bears Ears National Monument, saying this would allow the industry access to uranium deposits. Yeah, so we were kind of blaming Trump for that, and yeah, we, we should blame him for that. But um, apparently, this was one of the motive. This is one of the corporate forces behind it was that the company that owns this one last uranium milling 
facility in the U.S. that wants to expand, that wants to take uh, take uh, radioactive product from Estonia. And again, we know what we know what uranium is used for. It's used for nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. And I know that you know I, I'm well aware that there are problems with some of the minerals mined for wind turbines and solar power panels. And I'm I'm very happy to have that conversation and to to share in that criticism. But but uh, when you think about what the basic product in a nuclear power plant, the uranium, <laughs> you know that's where this is coming from. This, that's the, the, these the, these folks, the uh, the Ute people, are the ones being directly affected by this. Um, by this, uh, by this, uh, by this facility. So, you would hope that the government would say, "Okay, well, yeah, we we, we want to step in and protect these people. Uh, we want to protect our citizens who are, you know, clearly being compromised." Well, you might you might think otherwise. Uh, <laughs> this is Utah, and apparently, um, even though the government has been petitioned numerous times to uh, weigh in on behalf of the people being affected by this, but by these pollution pollutants. Um, the state says, and I quote again, based off of what we've seen over the past 16 or 17 years of regulating the White Mesa Mill, uh, we have no evidence to support any kind of assertions the mill is harmful to human health or the tribe. End quote. Really? That uranium is not harmful to human health? <laughs> and again, it's beyond... That, that's just... A, that boggles the mind. But, you know, again, it's not... It's not. It's not just the the, the uranium that's the problem. It's it's the, the the pollutants that leach out of the uh, of, of the of the, the, the the tailings ponds that that cause the water contaminant. It's the it's the, the desecration of the um, sacred sites of the Ute people, you know. And I, I I guess I I sometimes just have a hard time understanding why why people get away with this. And you know. And I, and I relate this too to our experience here in Iowa in the Upper Midwest. You know, it's not just, this is a classic example of racial, uh, of environmental injustice, of targeting um, brown and black communities, low income communities, communities without a lot of political power or money, targeting them uh, and steamrolling them. But, you know, that anymore, that's happening to predominantly white communities uh, as well. And so I, I really, this should, this should not be a partisan conversation. Whether you're being impacted by a uranium mine, a, a fracking you know, a fracking operation, an oil pipeline, or carbon dioxide pipelines, or all the other possible things that can ruin your quality of life, uh, you have a lot in common with any other person who's experiencing that same problem. You know. And again, again, I think here in Iowa, I mean, there are 2,000 miles of carbon dioxide pipeline proposed for this state. 2,000 miles. And it's hard to say for sure because we don't have data on this. But anecdotally, the majority of landowners, you know, again, mostly middle class, uh, white uh, farm community types, farmers, they, they don't, they, the majority are uneasy about this, if not outright opposed. So, you know, at some point, we've got to all come together and say, okay, uh, big government with big corporations uh, at their, you know, at their commanding them are rolling over our rights, our land, our water, our history, and it's wrong. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not going to end if we don't um, work together. And so, I, you know, I, 
I, I have one experience with the uh, <laughs> with that part of the world. That was when I was on the uh, Great March for Climate Action, and uh, we camped out at uh, what's the name of the place now? Uh, we we came to the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in New Mexico into southern Colorado, and we camped at Fort Garland. And Fort Garland was established in 1858. It was um, it was to protect the white settlers from the Utes, the hostile Utes, and um, and that the, you know Fort Garland lasted about 25 years, and that was just long enough to subjugate the Ute people. Um, the fort's now a museum, and I was uh, I was impressed with the uh, director Anita McDaniel, who conceded that what happened was not was not was not a good thing. The, it was the forcible theft of the Ute people's land. Um, and uh, she saw her role there as trying to provide reconciliation, to bring in perspectives of the Hispanic community, the indigenous community, not just the European and Anglo-American version. Uh, and, you know, and that's, um, you know, that, that's commendable. But again, the problem was that the Utes had most of the, the good land was stolen. They were put on the, quote, bad land. And lo and behold, oh, suddenly the bad land was not so bad after all because it had a bunch of minerals on it, including uranium, apparently. But at some point, uh, you know, this has to this has to end, you know. And I know I know right now I hear them say, well, we, we need uranium for our nuclear power plants and for our nuclear weapons. Well, the bigger question is, do we really need nuclear power plants? And the even bigger question is, do we really need nuclear weapons? To me, there's a simple answer to that, and that answer is no. And when you start getting rid of things you don't need that are actually more destructive, uh, that are totally destructive, I mean, I guess you could argue that nuclear power might not be destructive, but I say, gosh, we have so many better options. You know, let's, um, you know, when we start moving beyond the, quote, need for those products, we start moving back toward, uh, toward restoring uh, some some, uh, some some sanity to the landscape and to uh, and some justice to the people who live on it. Anyway, that's um, that's uh, <laughs> that's enough about that, folks. Uh, I could say more about it, but um, I want I want I want to spare I want to I want to share one more story with you about my winter in Nova Scotia in a log cabin, basically, um, with an outhouse and only wood for heat. It was an interesting experience. I'll share it with you when we come back from a short break. Again, this is Ed Fallon with you here on today's Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. 
Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. Thanks to Westrom Optometry, one of our sponsors located in Des Moines East Village, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. All right, so I had a girlfriend years and years ago, and she wanted to move to a farm in Nova Scotia and help out. She wanted It was an organic farm, uh, a very small organic farm that was, that they weren't, they weren't raising food to sell. They were raising food to survive, a family of four. And she wanted to move there. And being her boyfriend at the time, I felt it was my duty to hitchhike with her <laughs> because she didn't have the money to buy a bus ticket. So I hitchhiked with her. And um, that was, I think, 700 or 800 miles, a, a long hike. And that was uh, in July of maybe 78 or 9, a long time ago. And... Uh, I stayed there. I stayed there a couple days, and in the process, um, sprained my ankle playing soccer with a six-year-old. So at some point, I hobbled back to the highway and hobbled and hitchhiked my way back to uh, where I was staying in, in northern uh, northern Massachusetts, and um, but had become so intrigued by the uh, by the experience of visiting that organic farm. I mean, literally, this farm is two miles was two miles from its nearest neighbors to the south. To the north, it was a hundred miles of a pristine uh, Cape Breton highland. There was there, there was there was not a single human habitation. If you went straight north for a hundred miles, uh, plenty of moose, but uh, but nothing, no no human footprint. Pretty amazing. So I, I came. I, I was intrigued by the experience. I went back to help them out in the fall, and while I was there, I. Um, I uh, was approached by a family uh, that lived in the very, very northern tip of um, of Cape Breton Island. I mean, this was uh, the, the farm I was uh, I was visiting in the fall. That was in the middle of the island, a uh, hundred miles further north, on the very northern tip of Cape Breton, was a family that needed somebody to house it while they went to the U.S. to play music for the winter. That's what they said. I think they were just trying to get away from the winter. So. Uh, <laughs> Of course, having no clue about anything, I said yes. And um, for, let's see, from December through April, I house-sat uh, their place in, uh, in, in, in Capstick, uh, Nova Scotia. Actually, the very northern tip of the island is Meat Cove. Capstick is just down the island from Meat Cove. And Meat Cove, um, maybe you could guess why it's called Meat Cove, but the, um, the reason is, of course, is that... <laughs> When it came to harvesting caribou, the easiest way to do that was just to run them off the cliff. Uh, they, they would come crashing down, and then you could just harvest the meat quite simply from there. So, meat cove. Now, um, I had lots of, uh, lots of fascinating experiences when I lived there, and just uh, one of them relates to that. I'll show you that, share that with, with you briefly. Again, this part of the island was settled largely by either Scottish immigrants or French-Canadian immigrants. The French-Canadian communities tended to live along the coast and the Scottish descendants more in the interior. But um, there was a, a Scottish-descended guy, I can't remember his name, but I know it started with an MAC. And he, um, 
He was out with a buddy once, and they, there was a, there was a couple of folks from uh, a big city had come up to see what it was like out in the uh, in the rough rural highlands of Cape Breton Island. And he took them out on a boat, and uh, he saw a deer on the uh, cliff. Way, I mean, way, way far away. It, impossibly far away. You did not want to take a shot that far away. But he thought, what the heck, I'm going to just take a shot and see if I can impress these city boys. Took a shot at it, and it dropped. And without flinching, he just, uh, he just looked at it, and his buddy said, played playing along, his buddy said, did you, where'd you get it? Head or heart? And the guy said, heart. Just taking a 50-50 guess, he had no idea where he'd hit it. <laughs> and when, when they went over to retrieve the deer, sure enough, he'd hit it in the heart. And uh, those city boys had never been so impressed as <laughs> with anything in their life. So, but, I mean, the, the, the folks I met had just a great sense of humor. There was, um, and, and some strange folks, too. My next-door neighbor, when I say next-door neighbor, I mean a half mile up the road, was um, a young guy named Billy. And he, uh, he was rough, uh, uh, missing many teeth, um, uh, I think he'd been in plenty of fights. I'm not sure, but but he uh, he had um, he had inherited. He lived in a castle. It was hands down the smallest castle you'd ever seen in your life. But it was uh, absolutely a castle because it was it had a castle shape. It had a turret. It had a tower. It, it was a castle, tiny but a castle nonetheless. And he inherited that castle from uh, a guy who was kind of his mentor. He, this guy, I forget the guy's name. I didn't. I never met him. He was kind of a local legend. He um, was a strange guy with a, a strong spiritual trend, and he lived in this castle which he had built. And at one point, he decided he needed to fast, and he went on a fast, and he kept fasting, and he fasted for sixty days. I I've, I have fasted for as much as a week. I cannot imagine going sixty days. He broke his fast by eating dates. You don't do that. If you break a fast, you go really, really slow, gradual, gentle stuff. You don't take a high sugar product like a date and chomp on that. And he did, and he died. And after that, Billy just came to live in his castle. So a fascinating neighbor. Um, I, I, just, I, I met all these. I met so many interesting people. But I, I want to tell you a little about the weather because, again, a winter in northern Nova Scotia in Cape Breton Island is, is nothing to laugh at. <laughs> But it is a it is a toxic it is a tantalizingly beautiful experience. I mean, I I remember some storms that came through, and we the the, the house I lived in again the house was um, basically a you know a glorified cabin, no running water. We got water from I got water from a creek nearby. Um, no bathroom. We had an outhouse, uh, and um, and I had. <laughs> My, my source of food was a grocery store about two miles away, which I would ride a horse to, uh, and their freezer full of meat. <laughs> that was my food source, and it worked pretty well. But um, the, the ocean, the St. Lawrence Bay was right there. I mean, literally it was right there. And I, when I'd walk out the door, there was a hammock on the, on the waterfront. It was right on the water. And I remember one day, I, I dressed up for it. I put my warm clothes on, and I, and I sat in, and I just rocked in the hammock for the longest time during the strongest storm I'd seen there. Just the wind was raging. The snow was pummeling me. I heard the waves crashing. It was, uh, it was um, amazing how strong the, uh, the, the experience was. And somehow I just laid there for an hour in the hammock and didn't get cold and had a great time. Uh, I remember skiing as well. Now, one, now this, um, 
my only, my two forms of transportation were an ornery horse and a very, very large Labrador St. Bernard cross. And it was the funniest, uh, it was a huge dog, drooled constantly, um, friendliest thing in the world, and also stronger than get out. I mean, I would, this dog had a sled and you could put the sled on the dog and if you could coax it to move, it would walk through two feet of snow with you and you'd go to where you wanted to harvest wood. You'd load that sled up with wood and bring it back to the house. Um, that, that dog would carry a heck of a lot more wood on a sled than I could ever haul on my back. Um, <laughs> and again, winter lasted well into the third week of April that, that year. Uh, but <laughs> I, 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 had, um, I had one friend come and visit me. And uh, you know who you are. I'll share this with you. Yeah. <laughs> this, guy, this guy came to visit me, a friend of mine from college. And uh, I told him, I said, well, here's something you need to know. When we need water, we go out to the stream with a bucket. We get a bucket of water. It's, even though it's cold, it's always running because it's just coming down from the mountain. And um, that's, that's our spring water. It's clean as heck. You, you, you'll, you'll have no trouble drinking it, cooking with it, whatever. I told him a few other things. And I said, and we take, when we're done with burning the fire, we take the ashes and we throw them into the outhouse to kind of keep the smell down. Well, he didn't get the part about letting the ashes cool first. And so one day he and I are we're having breakfast, and I'm looking out the looking out the front window, and I see, I see, I, I think it's it's, it's snowing. I see it's snowing out. I mean, it's like this this cloud of looks like snow blowing past us. And I realize, no, that's not snow, that's smoke. I run out there, and sure enough, the outhouse is burning down. <laughs> so fortunately, it was close to the stream. So we're running back and forth with buckets of water, throwing them on the outhouse. And we put out the flames and lost maybe only a quarter of the outhouse. But, you know, in, in the wintertime, when you lose even 25% of your crapper, that's serious business. So the next thing we did that morning was get to work on fetching as many boards as we could find and trying to patch it up as best as we could. Uh, we got we got through the winter. Fortunately, when the, fam the when the family returned in April and found that their outhouse had been you know badly burned and even more you know and been and been been very badly patched, they didn't care much because they were building a new house anyhow that would actually have a bathroom. But the um, you know the uh, so I decided uh, it was I, I left before the family got back just by a day or two, which was fine. There was there was no trouble there. I, I was uh, I wanted to get back. Um, I can't remember where I was where I was going. Again, I was pretty footloose and fancy free at that point. But I remember, um, I, I never, I, you know, I didn't have a TV or a radio. I had no idea what the weather was going to do. And it was like April 25th. It was um, right about Easter Sunday. It was a late Easter that year. And I stepped out on the road, put my thumb up, and I managed to get a ride uh, to the French-Canadian side of the island, the uh, western side of Cape Breton Island just in time for a blizzard to hit. Uh, this was worse than the blizzard that came when I was swinging in the hammock. And the blizzard hit, uh, and it dumped about three feet of snow. Uh, and literally, there was, no, there was no way anybody could move. So I ended up staying at this family's house for like three days. Uh, I, made, I made bread. Uh, I walked with, I can't remember the guy's name now. I would walk, I walked into town with him through all the snow to try to get some groceries and whatnot. Uh, and then when I, you know, finally set out, uh, three days later, there was enough melting going on that you could still, you could, you could start to see uh, traffic on the roads again. But uh, again, that was third week in April. <laughs> Massive snowstorm in time for Easter. 
uh, yeah, it was just, um, there were so many things about that experience that were memorable. I, uh, you know, again, if you haven't been to Cape Breton, it's, it's one of the most beautiful parts of the world. Uh, you might remember that when Donald Trump was elected in 2016 and many um, more liberal Americans were just uh, distraught, uh, Cape Breton in Nova Scotia, uh, no, again, Cape Breton is part of Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia um, put out an invitation, said, disgruntled Americans, uh, we invite you to move to uh, Cape Breton Island. <laughs> I'm not sure how the residents of Cape Breton Island felt about that. I think they probably, I think for the most part, people I met there enjoyed the fact that there was a fairly minimal um, you know, minimal population. But, um, you know, I, I don't know how many Americans, if any, took advantage of that offer. But the um, it's a beautiful part of the world. Uh, I'll share two more things with you before we got to run to another break here. One is that um, I'm a big fan of shooting stars. Uh, if they happen, if, if, if it's August, that week in August, where you've got the, the, the tremendous meteor shower, I always try to go out and keep an eye on that. Harder to do in the city when you've got so many lights around you. Cape Breton Island is a great place to watch shooting stars uh, because there is so little ambient light. And uh, I was walking along. I can't remember where I was coming from. I've been off to visit somebody, I think. And I was walking along the highway. And boom, uh, the, the brightest shooting star I'd ever seen. Just It was, it was almost blinding. Uh, from my point of view, crashing, coming down over the cliffs and crashing into the St. Lawrence Bay. It was just absolutely breathtaking. Yeah, I mean, um, something else happened when I was in, I was in Nova Scotia. Uh, the um, bottle bill was passed, uh, and again, we've had we've had, we've had a lot of controversy here in Iowa this year about whether the bottle bill should be expanded or done away with or just modified. But in Canada, back in the late seventies, they they established a bottle bill, and it was retroactively effective, I meaning you could find, if you had bottles uh, sitting around from years and years before, they, were, they would qualify for the redemption. So having no source of income, I was intrigued by this, and I thought, I'm going to go out and find some bottles. And that's hard to do in the winter, but what I would do is I would go to abandoned houses. There were houses in the highlands, just totally abandoned, and I would find these tremendous stashes of bottles, and I would find ways of bringing them back uh, no, I did not use the dog and the sled, but I would find ways of bringing them back to the farm and then bringing them to into redemption. Uh, and I think I earned about $35 doing that until I one day uh, cut my finger on a broken bottle and had to go to the hospital. It was a pretty bad cut. I still have a, I still have a scar from it, in fact. And I went to the hospital and, um, and I didn't have any Canadian health care, so I had to pay for it. It wasn't that expensive. Uh, ironically, it was $35. <laughs> so the cost of the income from all the bottles I went, I gathered went to pay for my bottle in bottle inflicted uh, finger slice. Anyway, uh, great experience. Um, I hope uh, now that we're through winter, I hope you appreciate that winter has plenty of fun things to offer. Again, some of the stories I've shared have nothing to do with the fact that there was two or three feet of snow on the ground, but. Uh, um, I will always treasure my winter in Nova Scotia. What else I will treasure will be the final arrival of spring, which we haven't quite experienced yet here in central Iowa. Again, this is Ed Fallon. And when we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns joins me for our farm and food segment. We're going to be talking about some of the challenges that we are facing as urban farmers wrestling with one of the coldest springs that I can remember. Mm -hmm. 
Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit doing good work in the world, you can also become a sponsor of this program. Thanks to our sponsors, including Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm is joining me in the studio. And again, you know, we farm together and uh, we share the joys and sorrows of farming. And right now, it's kind of a mixed bag because we, <laughs> we had this glorious, what we thought was an entry into spring a couple of weeks ago. And then it went just sour. I mean, we had night after night of freezing temperatures, sub-freezing, uh, rains, several bouts of snow. And yesterday, for Kathy's birthday, mm -hmm. we had 78 degrees. Yay! <laughs> but today is actually my birthday. That's today's your yeah. birthday. Well, we celebrated we it yesterday. Celebrated. And today's a darn nice day as well. But, you know, there's... But we're having more cold weather coming. I know, yeah. So more it's, freezing it's just, nights. There are challenges that one faces when you deal with uh, unpredictable weather. And I know that, again, on, on, on balance, the world is absolutely heating up, especially in places like the Arctic and the Antarctic. Uh, but but again, in the upper Midwest, one one of the trends we're seeing is these these prolonged cold spells or these unusually unseasonable uh, cold periods. And the biggest problem is I'm concerned that we're going to see all these fruit trees mm -hmm. budding out. Mm -hmm. They're already starting. To, you're just starting just starting to see the June berries, um, the crab apples starting to put out buds, and boom, we get another really nasty cold snap. And a lot of that effort is going to be squandered. A lot of those, you know. Buds are going to die. We'll never see the fruit. And and then the pollen and the nectar won't be there for the bees either. Right, yeah. Those and, flowers go. We yeah. won't have a nectar flow. Yeah. And speaking of which, right now, uh, one of our challenges has been to be able to 
do a hive check. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really, really important to get into the beehive in, uh, in spring, early spring, and see how the colony's doing. And we, we managed to pull that off. <laughs> we had, we had I, I was on just uh, before Kathy's birthday party, in fact. Mm-hmm. We were able to get in there. And, uh, and you, you're the one who went in. Well, because and you came you're out allergic, alive. You're allergic, and you're, we still haven't fixed the breach in your bee suit. So, <laughs> um, but it's a, you know, if you do this as a uh, team, it's good to have one person go in and check the hive, and the other person record what the the person in the hive is calling out as far as the progress of each frame yeah. and how the queen's doing. Uh, that's a handy system. And but, she's doing really well. The queen is happy. The uh, there's there's uh, there are baby bees being born. We yes. saw them out today, in fact. So that that part's going well. I mean, I, the biggest problem for us in terms of our vegetables has been an inability to really harden them off. And again, maybe mm-hmm. maybe those listening know that you can't just take a vegetable, a seedling you've been growing in, in indoors under a grow light or by a window. You can't just take that and plop it in the ground. It's like a shock. Mm-hmm. It would it would it'll it'll it couldn't very well kill it. But so hardening off an hour a day, two hours the next day, three hours the next day. But the problem is, you get a, you get a, you know you get two hours of sunlight one day. The next day you get you get nothing in the thirties, and you get a twenty-five <laughs> mile an hour wind. You know, we've had we've recorded winds, could sustained winds lately mm-hmm. as much as 27, 28 miles an hour. And <laughs> so that's rough that's on our plants. Very we've rough. had uh, we've had our brassicas outside, the broccoli, cabbage, um, what, Brussels sprouts. And this was a weird thing. We've never seen this before. And I think it's because of the cold spring and the lack of the budding flowers. The sparrows came and started to eat, <laughs> to eat the, the plants that we were hardening off. And so we, the dandelions are not up yet. The violets are not up yet. So the, the things that might have the, the nutrients for some of these critters, they're having to get somewhere else. And they saw some green stuff, and they went for it. Well, and the other, the other problem, the, the reason we're getting a sparrow problem, besides just the, <laughs> the, the fact that sparrows are just everywhere, everywhere anyhow, but um, they like to get into our chicken feed. We um, buy the good feed, and they're very <laughs> fond of it. Well, and we try, we, the, the, the strategy there is we've been trying to give chickens more, you know, smaller feedings, Mm-hmm. more but more of them mm-hmm. so they eat all the food they don't just eat some and walk away and then the sparrows come and get the rest they eat they eat it all and don't leave any for the sparrows mm-hmm. and that sounds heartless maybe but we do have a heck of a lot of sparrows <laughs> so i think and they're they're and they're actually building homes inside the uh, in, in in our building and uh you know and they're looking for food and so they saw these delectable little uh start these uh, mm-hmm. we were just starting to harden yeah, off the broccoli Broccoli, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, and they just went at it. Mm-hmm. In no time at all, they started just tearing the plants apart. Other issues we're going to have because it's well past the time when we normally would have stuff planted and and starting to sprout uh, beans and peas and, and tender crops too. Um, but it's the fact that we're going to have freezes still during the next couple of weeks. But again... Have blankets, have sheets ready, and even keep those political sign frames. <laughs> They're nice little wire hoops. Set those up if you have taller plants. Like today we just planted the yeah. artichokes, yeah. and they are a taller plant. So you can't just plop a sheet down yeah. over that and not squish it. Planting artichokes on April 11th. Last year, we planted them on March 21st. So what a huge difference one year can make. you know. But, you know, I, again, if we do get cold snaps, I one of my favorite garden... Uh, survival implements, if I can call it that, mm-hmm. is a floating row cover. 
I was really surprised that some of the gardening, some of the local gardening shops don't carry it because it's such a handy thing. I mean, that's what we use to cover the, the, um, the, the, the cabbage and broccoli seedlings when the sparrows started attacking them. That, that's what's protecting them right now is this floating row cover. It lets light in. It lets water rain in if we get yeah. that, but it keeps the bugs in the bees and the yeah and the, well and the the birds well the nice when you're dealing with a bird problem your floating road cover can have a few holes in it and it's not that big a deal mm-hmm. like when you're trying to keep bugs out it's got to be it's got to be totally mm-hmm. intact mm-hmm. and so i mean and the other advantage it can help minimize frost damage so you know i mean uh, if it's if it's going to be well below well below freezing you know a few degrees below freezing i'd say then it's time for blankets but the other issue with the cold weather we're having now and we are having a hard time hardening off our plants is that we normally at Birds and Bees Urban Farm would be starting our seedling sales and we like to have um, have a lot of <laughs> many varieties of things available for people to to buy because they're they're um, very naturally grown they're heirloom and um, and they're really good good products but it's uh, it's just hard to get them in shape in time for the season, and so we we may not have everything at the same time as we had it last year. Yeah. And then yeah. suddenly spring will come, and people will need those. And even if somebody has a greenhouse or a hoop or whatever you use, I mean, we use our basement, and so limited space, um, limited light capacity, and so we we rotate stuff. Mm-hmm. The onions and leeks are the first to to go. They, they're already in the ground. They're doing fine. They don't mind a little bit of cold. Uh, they're doing fine. But uh, then the next batch to go out of the brassicas, the broccoli, uh, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, cabbage. But, um, you know, those should be in the ground by now. And they're not even close to being ready for the ground. So lesson so, learned. I mean, you have to be ready any year for any changes in the in the temperature. And it just comes with experience. So if you're, if you're struggling with spring being late, uh, just hang in there. Make sure that you are ready to go when it gets warm and um, be ready to do a second planting if needed. Kathy, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Uh, Thanks to our production team, including Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, and Charles Goldman. Uh, Thanks to our local business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, Groovy Goods, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And remember, your support for this program matters a lot. You can go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again, folks, and we'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.